it's amazing to think about that. God says that he uses the little things uh, in this world to, well, how does he say it, to shame the wise. But uh, you think about all of the people throughout Scripture that God has used are not those who've got all the uh, accolades after them and the, and all the titles and those things, but he's used it regular and ordinary people. And in, in, in the Christmas story, uh, in the story of, of the birth of Christ, uh, he used a child. I mean, who would have thought? Um, if I would have been in charge, that's not the way I would have done it. But, in fact, uh, God, uh, God has done an, an amazing thing. He, he came in the, in the um, frailty of human life. And that, to me, is just an amazing thing. And I, I'm so um, appreciative of our young people as they got up and shared some scripture today and, and shared in their program of focusing on this one small child and just a reminder that God uses the voices. I was talking to them in the back room. They're just saying God uses the voices of even children to, to share his message. And um, that's been done for years, ever since the birth of Jesus. And we're... I'm so appreciative of them. It just does my heart good to, to see them uh, share those things. Um, you, you know, it, someone once said that knowledge is just information that often leads us from the simple to the comp complex, but wisdom is a practical thing because it leads us from the complex to the simple, and we need wisdom in our day and age. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. And if you've been here the last uh, few weeks, this is the third week of a series that we've been, we've been in, in uh, for Christmas, and uh, we've been calling this Christmas Hope. Or as I said here a few weeks ago, uh, as I began that, as I began this series, uh, remember we were singing that song, uh, uh, O Holy Night, and uh, those words, the thrill of hope, they just kind of popped up and out of nowhere, and I just went, why did I call it Christmas hope? It really should be called the thrill of hope because of the excitement of this time of year. And uh, so we've got two titles to this series. We've got Christmas hope, but it is a thrill of hope. I think there's uh, God's part, and then ours, our, our response to that is just we're so thrilled, we're overjoyed, we're, we're, we're joyous because of it. It's so exciting. And so um, Christmas really is. That's really what it's about. It's about hope. And every time we read the story, there ought to be that excitement. There ought to be so much that it's just, it's just something we can't contain inside of us. We've just got to get it out, you know? Um, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. So if you'd read along with me, uh, it says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. I'll just stop there for a moment. I want to just begin this morning as, as just looking a little closer at these magi, looking a little closer at these wise men as they are traditionally called. And, and what I think we need to, to be focusing or need to realize uh, as we begin here is this is not just a story. This is not just some sort of a tale. This is really an event that is based upon historical facts. And so let me just share a little bit about these wise men. These are really wise, these really were wise men. And Matthew gives us almost no details when you look at this about these men. And, and, and most of the popular beliefs that we have are really misleading. And so 
For example, I doubt that these magi were really anything like the camel riding travelers that we usually see that we, on our Christmas cards, that we see in pageants, that we see you know, all over. And in, in fact, they probably, had, they probably rode Arabian stallions, not camels. And then I think about one of our Christmas carols that we sing, you know, we three kings of Orient are, and I think that's somewhat misleading because these men were certainly not kings. And nothing in the Bible says that they came from the Orient. Orient and furthermore, we do not have any evidence that they were, there were three of them. In fact, early church tradition believed that there were as many as, as a, a dozen wise men. And the suggestion that there were three actually came later, partly because, the biblical record that, uh, because of the biblical record that they, they brought three gifts to the baby Jesus. Now the interesting thing is, is that they even went, by, went so far as to even give these, these uh, wise men names. It was Melchor, Melchor Balthazar, and Casper, and not to be confused, of course, with the friendly ghost. But one thing is for sure. These are some individuals who are seeking a Messiah. And they are willing to travel a long distance to find him. Most of the information that we can glean from history suggests that they came from the lands, land of the Medes and the Persians, modern-day Iran. And so the, the wise men who traveled to Bethlehem that night probably came from Persia. Now, these wise men, these magi, they were the scholars of their time. Their teachings became known as the law of the Medes and the Persians. And both magi and their laws are referred to in the Old Testament books of Esther and Daniel. These laws of the Magi were in Persia, the law of the land. It was the legal code for them. Our word magistrate comes from that word, Magi. And so just to kind of summarize a little bit, the Magi were educated men. They were scientists, they were mathematicians, they were philosophers and doctors as well as legal authorities in their land. And because of their knowledge, these Magi, they rose to places of prominence in Babylonia, in Medo-Persian and Greek empires. They acted as advisors to kings, interpreting dreams and the like. But they made this incredible journey. Now think about that. This is an incredible journey, especially when you consider the fact that the average person during the time of, of the first century, they didn't travel any more than 30 miles away from their birthplace there in the first, in the first century. And so if they came from, if these wise men came from Persia and traveled by the main trade route, that means that they made an 800-mile journey. Now that may not seem like a lot to us, but this caravan probably would have covered 20 miles a day, and so at the very least we're talking about a 40-day pilgrimage through desert and mountains and some pretty treacherous terrain. And it is possible that it took them much longer than that, given the information that was shared with Herod that they had first seen the star two years before this. Now, I really think that's significant. I mean, you think about this. Bethlehem was less than five miles south of Jerusalem. And what that means is that these Jewish religious leaders, uh, they wouldn't even go five miles out of their way to see if this rumored Messiah was true. And yet we have these magi they, who go on this major pilgrimage, pilgrimage to say that 
that they went out of their way would certainly be an understatement. And so my concern is this. There are many people who will only follow Christ to the point of inconvenience, but no further. In truth, they really haven't even started following Him at all because those who really follow Jesus are those who are willing to go out of their way. They're willing to go wherever. They're willing to go whenever. You're truly a follower of Jesus when you fully surrender your life to Christ and are willing to follow in His footsteps wherever that may lead. And when you pass that inconvenience test, that's the point at which you become a follower of Christ. And one thing is for sure, these magi passed the test. Now it says that they came from the east to Jerusalem. Look at verse number two. And so they asked this, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Something that just occurred to me is that we read this story and, and uh, you think, you know, um, both of us, you and I both think that Jesus, we think of him as the main character in this. I, I, I'm, I'm not at all sure that that's how the listeners to this would have understood that back 2,000 years ago. I'm not at all sure that that's how they understood it. I, I mean, if you are an armchair uh, historian in the first century, and you're betting on who will have the greatest influence on history and maybe who will be remembered the longest, you're going to bet on Herod over Jesus every single time because it was no contest. Because, see, Jesus was perceived as this illegitimate son of a Jewish couple who lived on the wrong side of the tracks. We were talking about small people earlier, Right? In, uh, less uh, influential people, those, those people that God just loves to, to elevate those who are weak, so to speak. In comparison, Herod is this ruler, Roman ruler, who reigns over this region of Judea. He's done that for three decades. In fact, he ruled for so long that he was known as the king of the Jews. And that's, why I think, why this, this question was so disturbing to him because something that we didn't mention earlier was in the, in the year that Jesus was born, the Magi were still very powerful in the same basic territory which by then was known as the, the Parthian Empire. And, and one of the Magi's main duties was choosing kings in Parthia. And I think that that explains why their arrival in Jerusalem would have upset King Herod. He, he knew that these men were kingmakers, and here we find them going around town asking for the one who has been born king of the Jews. And Herod's probably thinking to himself, well, what do you mean? Where's the king of the Jews? I'm right here. It didn't make sense to him. Now, the historical consensus is that, that Herod was ruthless. I mean, you don't uh, uh, kill your, your wife and your three children and not have a reputation like that. Um, and it wasn't long after the Magi brought this great news of this baby who would be king of the Jews that, that Herod ki- uh, committed the most heinous crime of, crime against, of all against the village of, of Bethlehem. 
he ordered that all of the baby boys under the age of two would be killed. I think that that is a part of the story that maybe we don't give much thought to. And we read about it in Matthew chapter 2, or it's, it's referred to in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. But here's what it says, and here's what it sounds like. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I, I just can't, I, I think about that, and just, just let your mind take in the, the gravity of that. All these baby boys, everyone two and under, murdered. I, I can't help but think that maybe, in a small way, we, you and I, can identify just a little bit every time we hear on the news of some senseless murder, and there are many of them that are taking place in our country. There's many that we see that are happening to some of these terror attacks and things like that. And, 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 and every, time, every day that I turn on the news, there's one more thing. It's just, I mean... You know what I'm talking about here. Just uh, recently, this, this woman, and uh, there was uh, also this, this young high school student uh, that was killed. And you, just, you hear all of these things over and over, and it just it makes your heart just sad. Um, I don't know if it's just that the news travels so f- much faster today, but it just seems like every t- time you turn around, you turn on the news, that's all you hear. But I think... It is just a reminder to us that not unlike what happened 2,000 years ago, that we truly are at war every single day. And every single day we witness the, this battle. That, that, that there's this battle going on between good and evil. And every once in a while, just evil just jumps up and rears its ugly head. And I believe that that's when we need to fall on our knees at the foot of the cross and we need to say, Jesus, we need your help. And I can't help but think that, that this is how these parents of, this, uh, of these little boys in Bethlehem might have felt. I mean, can you just imagine an entire generation of little boys just in an instant were killed at the hands of Herod? But the lone survivor of that genocide was Jesus himself. And the irony for me of the Christmas story is this, that three decades later, those families who lost their little boys would find hope in the one little boy who survived, who went to the cross for them, and who gave them the hope of life beyond this life. Our hope is not in the here and now. Our hope is not in the circumstances that surround us. Our hope is found in the cross of Jesus Christ that gives us not just hope for this life, but a hope for life beyond death. Amen? Look at verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen went, uh, st- seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And then in verse 10, it's, it's so easy to read, but you think about that journey that they 
have uh, just come on to, to finally arrive at this place. It says, when they saw the star, you read this earlier, they were overjoyed. Overjoyed. Our English translation really doesn't do it justice, that word, overjoyed. It literally, the text literally says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's what it means. I mean, in other words, this is a rare joy. It just cannot be contained. And I, I guess one way, I, there's one translation I saw that it basically said that they jumped for joy like little children. Now, there's an image for it. Because it, this was the greatest discovery of their lives. They had finally found, they'd heard about it, and they'd finally found the Messiah. They'd heard about it for years upon ages, upon generations. And they finally come to this Messiah. See, Christmas reminds us that true joy is found in only one place, one place alone, and that is in the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so the Bible says that we ought to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. I read, I read this, po this quote this past week that I thought I'd... I thought you'd maybe like, but, but someone said this. I think I put it up here. Don't let what's wrong with you, let me say that again. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what is right with God. Isn't that a great quote? Hits you right there. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. It, it's just great. See, because if you think... Uh, about this, if you think that worship is the way that, if you think about it, worship is the way that we take our focus off of ourselves and we begin to refocus on what, on who God is and, and on what He has done and, and, and what that means to us and for us as a result. I think that that's what Christmas is all about. It's, it's, it's the gift that the Father has given to us by sending His Son. Now, I, I, I'm not sure whether or not you're going to get every president that you hope for, whether that's going to be under your tree next week, here in nine days, I guess it is. But I am positive that if you kneel at the foot of the cross, that you will get a gift unlike any gift ever offered. It is the gift of salvation. It is the gift of sin forgiven. It is the gift of a re right relationship with the Creator. It is the gift of eternal life. Well, the angel said it this way, Luke chapter 2, verse 10, do not, be afraid, I do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Simply put, the gift of Jesus is a gift of joy. Perfect joy, joy to the world. I, I love the story about the little girl who was asked if she got what she wanted for Christmas. And she thought about that for a second, and here's what she said. She said, uh, no, but then again, she says, it's not my birthday. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, that he is the one who offers us the gift, the gift of salvation. Well, look at verse number 11. It says, On coming to the house, 
they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. I really love this part of the story because these are some really interesting gifts. I mean, some gifts are just perfectly chosen, perfectly timed. Has that ever been a part of your Christmas experience? Got the right gift at the right time? Anybody? Yeah? Well, maybe this will help you. I mean, as a parent, that's what I've always hoped for on Christmas. But I remember when our kids were young. And there were all these gifts under the tree. And you'd say, I don't know how old they were, four, five, six, something like that. And, and, and we had Mike and Nate, and they're opening up their gifts one at a time. I mean, they had to take their, they had to each take a turn, you know. That's, that's tough for kids. No, they want to just dig into it. But we made them sit there, and one would go, and we had to watch the one open his present, and then the other one would go, and we'd have to watch that happen. And, and it's just excruciating for young kids. It just is. They just want to get it all done, and no, they don't care if anybody sees what they got, but that was our rule, and we did that. And we had also explained to them on Christ, that on Christmas Eve that that's when they get to open their, their gifts from, from mom and dad, um, and that on Christmas morning that's when they would open up their, their gifts from, from Santa. And so anyway, on Christmas Eve they were opening their presents from mom and dad, and, and naturally they wanted to open the bigger ones first. See, this is our plan. What Susan and I did was we wrapped little things like socks, underwear, clothes, little trinkets, and all those things. We wrapped those in big packages. <laughs> and so all the kids were just, they would grab the big one first and wrap into them and everything else. And it was so, so here we are, we're, we're, they're taking their turns opening their packages, and the packages are getting smaller and smaller. And then came the toys, some more, you know, the, the I don't know, the, the remote control toy, uh, trucks and things like that. But you can see what's happening, right? At first, the disappointment on their faces is just so obvious. It's like opening this big box and getting a pair of socks. <laughs> but the excitement just began to grow and to grow with each and every gift. But then, when they thought that things couldn't get any better, we gave them the smallest package of all. We handed them each an envelope. <laughs> and inside, the, the, the contents of that, that envelope was actually a picture of a new bike. <laughs> and, I, and again, disappointment is like, thanks, Dad. You know, and, and, and all over again. And they just didn't know quite what to do with that. And that is until we had to, you know, we, we saw how sad they were. And then we just kind of encouraged them to go down in the basement and check some things out down there, which there was a couple of brand new bikes that were made for them. So they ran down the basement. The reactions were just unforgettable after they did that. They're coming running up and just like, these are just perfect, Dad. These are great. This is the greatest Christmas ever. And then the interesting thing is that after they opened, now this is, uh, after they opened their gifts from uh, Santa the next morning, just the small gifts, we had things like stocking stuffers, stuff that's from Santa with, with the candy canes and other little, little tiny toys. And, but we asked them who gave them the best gifts. Did mom or dad or Santa? What do you think they said? Santa. Santa. 
So the excitement, I think, wore off. But anyway, you know, when you read this story, it just seems like the wise man's brought the wrong gifts, doesn't it? I mean, what kid wants myrrh for Christmas? Uh, Give that kid some ancient Jewish action figure. Moses, maybe, with staffs, or, or Esther with different outfits, or something to play with, you know, Promised Land Monopoly, or Red Sea Wee. But gold and frankincense and myrrh? I got an email a few years ago that was circulating called The Three Wise Women. You've probably seen this. I don't know why I save these things, but every once in a while it comes up and it's like, oh, I could use that. It said that, it's, it asked this question, do you know what would have happened if the three wise women, if, if it had been three wise women instead of three wise men? <laughs> they would have asked for directions. They would have arrived on time. They would have helped to deliver the baby. They would have cleaned the stable. They would have made a casserole, and they would have brought practical gifts. What I love is that this ends up being the perfect gift, kind of like what what our kids were like, Dad, this is perfect. Mom, this is perfect. I love the fact that this ends up being the perfect gift because what what happens after the, after the, the wise men leave? Joseph is warned in a dream that they need to flee Egypt, right? Now tell me, how does a minimum wage carpenter who just paid a huge tax bill fund a trip to a foreign country? How about some high-priced gifts that could be bartered like gold and frankincense and myrrh? I mean, what a perfect gift. Well, and we know that those have to do with ultimately, right? We understand what those are about. They're a symbol of his being a prophet and a priest and a king. That's really the essence of what that's about. But I guess, uh, well, let me just close with this. (laughs) <laughs> a few years ago I got a Christmas card from someone and kind of an unusual one but because on the outside of it it said the, el- the results are in uh, the results of your IQ tests are in and then I opened up the card and it said something like you are not one of the wise men <laughs> not sure whether I like that one or not it, it was a funny card um, but I want to, I, I, all that just to say this, I think this is uh, important. The old axiom, I think, is true. Wise men still seek him. I love the way that they bowed down to this baby. I love the way that they bow as low as they possibly can go. And I guess the question is, what are you bowing down to? We all bow down to something. And at Christmas, it's a, it's a reminder that we need to bow down in one place at the foot of the cross and at the seat of the Savior. Wise men still seek him. And just like the Magi who crossed <clears throat> deserts and mountains to seek the Messiah, I think that Christmas is all about going out of our way, doing everything human pos- humanly possible,
to seek God first. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we, we come today and we're seeking first the kingdom of God. And um, Lord, it's, it's, it's our desire. It's, it's, it's our, our uh, real, um, the need of our lives is that you alone be on the throne of our lives and that, that we would just bow down to you and to you alone. And so, Father, if there's anyone here who hasn't done that, um, my prayer is that this Christmas will be a time for them to do that. And I pray for the rest of us, God, that, that uh, those times in which we choose to, we have that choice before us, whether to bow or whether to, to go our own way, that you would give us that strength and that, um, that focus to be able to choose to bow before you. Thank you for the gift that you have offered to us in your sinless Son. And Father, we profess our faith in him alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Stand and sing for joy. Yeah.